Amen. You can be seated. Let's clap to the Lord on that song. Is that not incredible? What an incredible new song. I, Danny, thank you so much for bringing that to us. I am so thankful for you this morning and uh, really excited about this, uh, this opportunity this morning. We are, we are thankful for our moms today. Amen? Amen. Well, we could have continued. We thought about this. We could have continued in our series on Daniel which is called Depth in a Difficult World. However, the next story in line was how King Nebuchadnezzar literally goes crazy, and we did not think that was a great Mother's Day message, you understand? (laughs) The bottom line is, Pastor Bart was just way too chicken to deliver it, all right? So that's, he's in this service today, so uh, excited about that, but it is really my honor to be able to, uh, to bring this Mother's Day message for us today. And I think it's important that while we focus on this today and we celebrate moms, I think it is incredibly important because we are going to be taking a look at some biblical moms and some series of relationships, a couple of tandem relationships uh, in, in, the, in the Bible that God has for us. And we're going to look at some of these today. But I want to make crystal clear that what the, the principles that we're going to learn today are applicable to everyone, all right? We need to understand that when we look at male examples in God's Word, it is not just applicable to men. And when we look at female examples in God's Word, it is not just applicable to females, to ladies, right? Can we amen on that? Because here's the understanding with this. We realize that, that so often when we refer to God in God's Word, there, there is a masculine tint to that because the, that's the way in which it was written. But there is no gender in God. God equally maintains the characteristics of both men and women. And being a father of two daughters, that is incredibly important to me for you to understand that there are feminine qualities of who God is just like there are masculine qualities of who God is. And we're going to look at some of those and look at some of the, the, the nurturing qualities of who God is, but also some of the incredible strength that comes through the feminine characteristics because some of the toughest ladies that I know are women. Amen? I'm going to wreck Yeah, y'all can clap for that. Please do. All right. Yeah, you're a little scared like, mom, can I call you tough? Let me draw attention to one tough lady today. She is right over here. Her name is Amanda Fuentes. Because Amanda, just a couple of weeks ago, did one of the things, and Jason, I know you helped deliver this child, but you do not get the credit here, all right? I'm sorry. They did something that literally, as a young, soon-to-be dad, was my greatest fear that was possible. They did not make it to the hospital. Their last child was delivered on Cherry Street and the I-30 bridge, okay? Yes. And uh, it was really intriguing, however, that when they tried to deliver the bill at the hospital, they tried to charge them for the delivery, and Jason went, oh no, my friend. (laughs) Oh no, you did not deliver this baby, so you cannot charge me for the delivery of this baby. So, Women are absolutely tough, right men? All right, you would do well, you would do well to amen at that particular point in time. But I tell you, as we think about this Mother's Day message, I feel like I am eligible to deliver this message because first of all, I can read God's word for myself. 
and look at the stories that are in here about the incredible strength of ladies and especially moms as we're going to look at today. I can read God's Word. Secondly, I was given an incredibly godly mother. She passed away nine years ago last month, and it is hard for me to imagine that it was nine years ago. But I am indelibly imprinted with her and with her character and with who she is and the godly nature of the lady that she is in my life today. I was not only given a godly mother, but I married a godly mom. She, she, Jennifer has exhibited these characteristics that I'm going to talk about today. And although uh, our characters or our, our personalities could not be more different, as I could not be more extroverted than I am, and she could not be more on the introverted scale. And so mentioning this today is potentially death for me. <laughs> she is a godly, godly woman, and she has raised our daughters in a home depicting what that godly woman looks like. And not only being able to raise them, but to live her life and fulfill her purpose and calling in the public education system while doing so. And I am literally in awe of her. So I have a godly mother. I married a later to be a godly mother. And I also have a godly mother-in-law. She was in the last service. And it's been a privilege for me not only to be her son-in-law, but her pastor for many years of our lives together. And for the last 26 years of my life, I was invited into their family. And I am thankful for my mother-in-law as well. And should there be any character flaws left in me after all of those godly women... Nine years ago, Liz Maxwell took the role of mother in my life and has continued to work out any character flaws that might be within me. As if I needed a mother, she was more than happy to become one to me, and she's done that uh, in my life. So Liz, thank you today on Mother's Day as well. But as we think about this, we also, as Bart mentioned earlier, we need to pause for a moment and understand that we know that today can be a difficult day for many of us as well. It can be a difficult day because it might um, draw attention to the fact that our moms are not presently with us anymore. Because as in my case, nine years ago, and my good friend Gary McKay is somewhere in this service and just last week lost his godly mom as well. But maybe that's you. And so there's hope in understanding that their greatest legacies continue to live on in us. Amen? It's also a difficult day because folks have struggled to become parents, and therefore Mother's Day is like this big bullseye on the calendar that just draws attention to that sense in their life. And we want you to understand that we walk with you, and that there is much more towards being a mom than just biology. Amen? You can be a spiritual mom to so many, and we have such a need for that in the body of Christ. So we recognize that it can be difficult because of that. It can also be difficult because perhaps you've had a difficult relationship with your mom. But nevertheless, we understand 
that not only our existence would not be possible without them, but many of the characteristics, even in difficult relationships, we are who we are, sometimes reacting from those difficult relationships and sometimes because of the incredible nurturing that God brings us. So we need to acknowledge that before we just jump into a day like today, to know that there's a host of emotions that we feel in this room as we think about this. But as we walk into some stories and some characteristics of some godly moms today, and as we look at legacy-leaving lessons from, from biblical moms, I also want to recognize this. If you are 18 or older, you should have received chocolate. That was our intent, okay? If you're ladies 18 or older, if you are 18 or older, ladies, would you stand up right now, okay? If you have your, go ahead, stand up. We're going to do this all together. Go ahead and stand up again. I know you were acknowledged already. 18 or year older females in the room. Now, if you do not have a bag of chocolate with you, you will get one on the way out. Do you understand me? All right? Now, I need you to do something for me. I need all of you to raise your right hands, okay? There you go. That's your other right hand. There you go. There you go. All right. Raise your right hands. All right. Now, I need you to repeat after me. I promise that I will not share my chocolate with any of my children or boyfriends or any man in its entirety. You may sit down. Now... The reason I did that is now, how many of you moms, your, or, or ladies, your sibling or child has already asked you for one of your chocolates? Raise your hand. Thank you very much, okay? Now, you have promised in church, under God, that you cannot give your chocolate out. So, it would be a travesty if you were to share your chocolate with anyone else. So, you enjoy that, even to the point that you can unwrap that during the message today as loudly as you would like, hold it up, place it in your mouth, look at your children, husband, or significant other, and go, mmm, this is so good. Would you like what? No, I promised I couldn't give that. No, it's all right. So that is totally fine. It will not bother me in the least. You know, you could talk during this message. It's not going to bother me at all because we have some incredible, exciting things to, to look at in God's Word. We're going to look at some ladies, some of them a little bit obscure, some that you certainly have heard about in the past uh, for certain, but, but we're going to look at some of these ladies, two from the Old Testament, or, or two instances from the Old Testament, and also one uh, group of ladies from the New Testament as well. So, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to start in Samuel. Now, the reason we're going to start there is because we have the story of a man named Samuel, of which we have two books in the Bible that are written about Samuel. Now, Samuel comes at a time in which there's an incredible transition that's happening with the children of Israel, these Hebrews. Remember, they had come into the promised land led by Joshua, and from Joshua up to Samuel, we have what is called individuals who are called judges. Now, there is a book of the Bible named Judges that talks about this period of time. It is a period of time that is given while Israel was what was called a theocracy, and they were moving to what is called a monarchy. A theocracy is simply where they view God as the leader of their country. 
they would have done well to stay with a theocracy, but instead they desired, as their other kingdoms around them had, they desired a single king to rule over them, a what is called a monarchy. And so we are in this transition period, this time in between this, and it's the time of judges. And Samuel, who we are going to read about today, is the last and final judge. It would have been a great movie title, The Final Judge, right? That would have been Samuel's life. And Samuel's life is one of those lives that literally leaps off the page. He is the final judge because God uses him as a prophet to anoint the next two kings in this monarchy. That would be, first of all, Saul, who is the first king of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah. And the second is the greatest king of all of Israel, and that is David. Now, David's going to hold a pivotal point uh, for our whole message today, kind of in the center of this. So remember that he's going to be that second king. But Samuel is the bookend. He's the final judge before Israel transitions into this monarchy. So we pick up a story about Samuel's mother. Her name is Hannah. We have a picture, a a very famous picture of Hannah bringing Samuel to the temple and dedicating him. And that's going to be part of our story today. But we start in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 2 through 7. And it says this, Elkanah had two wives. That's a problem to begin with. All right. We're just going to acknowledge that. It was not God's intent, but it is what Elkanah did. And it's not going to play well for him or others. Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah, excuse me, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Now here begins a rivalry. A rivalry that we see throughout Scripture. Jealousy that comes about because of having children or not having children. Having a certain job or not having a certain job. Being recognized by parents or not being recognized by parents. You'll remember that this kind of jealousy has played a part since the beginning of the Garden of Eden. You'll remember Cain and Abel. This whole sin that took place as Cain killed his brother Abel because of a difference in sacrifice. But it was really the issue of jealousy. From Cain and Abel, we go to people like Sarah and Hagar, as Abraham had children with both of these. And there's no conflict in that story, hello, that maybe all of Islam goes back to Hagar, and all of Judaism and the West goes back to Sarah. There's no conflict between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity today, correct? Okay, significant conflict that began with an issue of infertility and jealousy that took place as a result of this. So it's been an existing problem. How about Jacob and Esau? Significant sibling rivalry between two brothers. How about the wives of Jacob, Leah and Rachel? Are you seeing a theme here that is going on for uh, all of this jealousy? And there might have been just a tinge of jealousy between, say, Joseph and his brothers. When your brothers sell you into slavery because you're the beloved son and not them, that is a little bit of conflict, right? So this jealousy that we see between Hannah and Peninnah is certainly here and available. And each year, verse 3 says, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. And the priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli named Hophni and Phinehas. Now, 
Is there anyone in the room named Hophni or Phineas? Anyone? Okay, moms, here's, or soon to be, or sometime to be moms, probably not wise to name your children Hophni or Phineas because the lineage of these two sons of Eli, who Eli was the high priest, were not good. They are actually killed by God because they are so wicked. Not a good idea. All right, on the days that Elkanah presented the sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah and to each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the original mean girls, okay, in Peninnah. Now, bullying is not something new. It is recorded right here in Scripture. Bullying goes back a long way. And Peninnah would taunt Hannah because she was not blessed with children. So you can just imagine the tension in this home. Talk about sister wives gone awry. This is rough, rough stuff. And year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they would enter the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. You see the incredible sadness and grief. And here we have on display a story of desperation. A story of desperation as we look at Hannah. And Hannah, in one particular point in time with this, cries out to God, and she goes and visits Eli. And Eli, the high priest, comforts Hannah and says, you will conceive and you will give birth. And sure enough, God honors this plea of desperation from Hannah, and she conceives and gives birth to a child. But in her desperation, she makes a vow to God. And I've got to be incredibly honest with you today. This is of one of two instances in Scripture that I, I have incredible struggle with as a parent. One is here as Hannah decides and vows to God that she will give Samuel up as soon as he is weaned. And that is typically in a Jewish home from the ages between three and five years of age. Weaning typically took a little bit longer in these homes than they do in our homes today. Between the ages of three and five, sometime in that time period, Hannah takes Samuel and gives him to Eli to be a servant in the house of the Lord for the rest of his life. And I struggle with that as a parent. Any others in here that would struggle with making a decision like that? The other one that I struggle with is Abraham being willing to offer Isaac on an altar on Mount Moriah. I struggle with these stories because what they portray to me is people who are in incredible love with God and incredible love with their families and yet are willing to give up their rights to these beautiful things called children in their lives. And this is what Hannah does. And so what we learn initially from Hannah is simply this, that God calls all of us to live lives of prayer and dedication. God calls every single one of us to live lives. And we're going to look at a prayer in just a minute that Hannah prays as she is given Samuel to the Lord, and it is a beautiful psalm that is actually creates a bookend of psalms or songs to the Lord. We have it in 1 Samuel 
chapter 2, and we will see the second one. We're not going to look at it today, but you can look it up for yourself. In 2 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel 2 and 2 Samuel 22. These are bookends to the book of Samuel. And 2 Samuel 22 is David's psalm who comes through this whole process as he understands who he is in front of God. But what we see from Hannah is that, she, that God calls us all to lives of prayer and dedication. We must never take our commitments that we make before God lightly. Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs 20, 25. It says this, It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and then to reflect only after making the vows. We've all heard that there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Well, what that basically means is when you're in a point of desperation as Hannah was in and you cry out to God and you bargain with God and you say, God, if you will do this, I will do this. It is a snare. It is a trap to say rashly, God, I'll do that. And then when it happens, you don't follow through with your commitment. That is a very, very uh, cautious thing for us to do now. Having said that, you go, okay, I don't remember a lot of times of desperation where I've cried out to God in that type of deal. But it's not just times of desperation. Do you realize some of the things that we just promised God? Let me remind them of you because you sang about them this morning. We declared, first of all, God's glory in this place. We, We declared our own freedom over sin. We declared that we would attempt the impossible. In your worship today, you declare that to God. And it is not something light that we should just flippantly enter into worship because the music is playing and because the person next to us seems to be declaring this, that we just jump in because it is a snare to say rashly something is holy and then not to follow through with our commitment. Let me remind you, since we're on the topic, of a commitment that we made as a church just a couple of weeks ago as we dedicated families all across the front here. As we dedicated those families, we don't do child dedication at EVC. What we do is family or parent and child dedication because here's what we're saying. Moms and dads, you are the primary disciples of your family, not the church, you are. Because you are the one to live out these principles day in and day out as Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about as we who are believers in Christ and certainly in the Old Testament it represents Judaism but we as believers in Christ are to declare who God is to our children. Amen? That is our responsibility. But as a church we also said that we will come alongside you And we will walk with you. And we will be the ones who teach your children in our children's ministry. We'll be the ones to uh, teach our kids or teach your kids when they're in vacation Bible school or going to, to youth camp or kids camp. We will be in the trenches with you to help and equip you to be the primary disciples of your family. We as a church made that commitment just a couple of weeks ago. And it was a tragedy this week as we were in our elder meeting And it was brought up that our preschool teachers are tired because we can't seem to get enough folks into that ministry. 
We dedicated ourselves and committed ourselves to walk with others, and yet our preschool and children's ministry, two of the greatest ministries that we could ever have as they're laying foundations in the lives of kids, are struggling to find people to come and to work, and yet we're still having children, and we're still requiring the need for them to be there, and yet we're not stepping up to that incredible opportunity that we have as a church, and we need to be careful that we not come to this place of saying too rashly, we're going to walk beside you. This mom that I told you about, this godly mom of mine, for 30 years worked in the threes and fours group of preschoolers her whole adult life that I knew her. The whole time that I was alive, she was working in the three and four-year-old department. Behind the scenes, wiping noses, changing diapers, taking care of kids, and teaching them the foundation of God's Word. And for my money, there is nothing that is more important than that. And what kind of a commitment would it be from us as a church to say to our preschool workers who've been working all year, listen, we'll come work maybe one Sunday a month or maybe a couple of Sundays out of the month, and we will take your spot over the summer so that you can come back in in the fall and be rejuvenated. Is that something you think we could get behind church? Amen? Okay. Is that something we think we could get behind and make a commitment to church? Amen? All right. You can see Kendra immediately after this service. Because we want to follow through with those commitments. But you see, we can't look at biblical, godly mothers and not see the incredible self-sacrifice that they give and not follow through with that as the body of Christ and to see our responsibilities to take a step forward and to work in that field together. God calls us to live lives of prayer and dedication We cannot wait for someone else to do it because someone else seems to never come. We need to take steps forward in that. So we've dedicated our life to this. Hannah also shows us a dedication to prayer. I want us to read together the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. Let me read it for you. I want you just to pay attention to the language of the overflowing thankfulness that Hannah has for her God. My heart rejoices in the Lord. This is after the birth, after the weaning of Samuel, after the delivery of him to the temple. I know some of you would like to deliver your children to the church and leave them here, okay? We are not in that business yet, okay? So we're not doing that today. All right, but here's what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Understand that the focus is on God. The focus is on who Christ or who God is in her life. Now, I have an answer for my enemies. She's excited. She's confident. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. This is one of the first places that we see this metaphor as there's no rock who I hold on to, who gives me safety, who gives me security. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Who do you think she's speaking to? Penina, or Penina, uh, or Penina, excuse me, Penina. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak, speak with such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. The Lord saw you being a bully. The Lord noticed that. And the, the message for us is, the Lord sees us what we have done. The Lord sees us when we are committed and when we are dedicated. The Lord sees us when we are not. 
for he will judge you for your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Now, what the language he's going to get into now is comparison and contrast to the strong and the weak. You'll see it multiple times. The rich and the poor. Those who are well-fed are now starving. Those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children. This is Hannah. As she rejoices, she is eventually given six other children. And the woman with many children now wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but he raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He brings the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. And he sets them among princes and places them in seats of honor. For all of the earth is the Lord's and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones. Notice where the emphasis is. God will do this. Her dedication is to God. Her her understanding, her trust is in God. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to the king. There's not been a king yet. This is prophetic that she is praying forward to when this monarchy will be in place. He increases the strength of his anointed one. Hannah can pray. Jennifer sent me this this week that someone else had said, if we had more parents who prayed like Hannah, we would have more young men and women like Samuel. The prayers of a godly mom. And that's what I have seen in my wife. Since early on, before our girls were even born, she began to pray. And one thing that she came at across that I want to just share with you as a resource to you moms and dads is a little book it's called the power of a of praying for your adult children there's another volume that is the power of praying for your children the power of praying for your husband so there are multiple of these this is written by a lady named Stormy O'Marion who actually she is a lady who has faced incredible depression in her life We gave this book to all of the folks in our life group who had graduating seniors this year because I have watched my wife faithfully pray over our daughters. Pray over them when they were young. Praying over them as they've grown. Praying over them now as they're those adult children, as they begin to make those decisions and different things on their own. And parents, I cannot tell you the incredible power of a praying mom and dad. I am here today because of a godly mother and a godly grandmother and a godly great-grandmother. I am here today because of the power of their prayers. Even to the point that my father, as he was alone and lonely the last three years of his life without my mom, I challenged him to say to my father, Dad, I don't know what you can do because he couldn't get up hardly anymore. He was in incredible pain. I said, I don't know what you can do, but dad, what I do know you can do is you can pray into the future that you will never see if you will pray for your kids, you'll pray for your grandkids. And he took that as his mission the final years of his life. Parents, it is incredibly powerful for us to pray prayers over our children. And these prayers are literally prayers from God's word. And one of them is the prayer that Hannah prays. We learn A lesson, a legacy-leaving lesson of life from Hannah to live lives of prayer and dedication, commitment to one another, or commitment to these things we have called uh, holy from God. The second group of people that we look at today is not just Hannah, but it's Naomi 
and a lady named Ruth. I love this picture. Naomi and Ruth. Naomi was the mother-in-law of Ruth. Let me tell you the story of how this went. You see, Naomi lived in a place called Bethlehem. You've heard of it before. It is a place where Jesus was born. This is centuries before that, however. It is called Bethlehem because it is a combination word of two Hebrews words called Beth and Lechem. And what it means is simply this when you put it together. Beth Lechem is house, Beth, of bread. Lechem, house of bread. The reason it's the house of bread is because it's surrounded by fields of wheat that when it is harvested is brought to Bethlehem and inside Bethlehem is made bread. And it's from here that later David, the great grandson of this lady named Ruth, will eventually be king. Again, David comes central to our story because he is the greatest king of all of Israel. And from David's lineage eventually comes Jesus Christ, who is born in none other than Bethlehem, the house of bread, and Jesus becomes the bread of life. And it all comes from this story of Naomi and Ruth. Naomi lived in Bethlehem. She lived with her husband named Elimelech. Say Elimelech 14 times fast, okay? Elimelech, okay, it starts to sound like in the jungle. No, anyway, Elimelech, okay, anyway, that's a, that's a, that did not happen in the first service, and we are all thankful for that. All right, so Elimelech, Elimelech is married to Naomi, and they move because of a famine in the land in the house of bread where there's no wheat, and there's now a drought, and there's no wheat to be had. They move to the land of Moab. And in the land of Moab, Naomi has two sons named Malon and Kilian. Malon and Kilian take Moabite wives. They do not take Jewish wives. And this oftentimes in the Old Testament points to some negative things that are going to happen. But they take Moabite wives. And these Moabite wives are very important to the story because Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. Twelve years later, both her sons die. And now Naomi is alone with her two daughters-in-law. One of them is named Orpah. I have been told that Oprah is actually a misspelling of Orpah. I don't know if that's true. Frankly, don't care. All right. <laughs> Nevertheless, Orpah is one of these, and Ruth is the second of these daughters-in-law. And we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. And it says, again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, a stubborn young Moabite lady, clung to Naomi tightly. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. And then we have a passage of scripture that quite honestly a lot of young couples in their weddings use, thinking that it's between a man and a woman. And it is not. They look at each other lovingly and they say these words, and I want to go, hey, hello, do you know these are from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law? This is not, this is the kind of commitment that is based on absolute love and selflessness. And here is what Ruth says to her mother-in-law. Remember her sister-in-law went back to her people. And that would have been natural for Ruth to do. But Ruth says this. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you or to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, 
I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, when she saw that she was hard-headed, was she determined to go with her, she would say nothing more. What we learn from Naomi and Ruth is that our response to relationships is to be love and commitment. Our world does not know much about real love and real commitment. As I mentioned, those two, that loving couple that stares into each other's eyes and says, that dedicates their life to loving one another. They think they love each other. They don't know what love really is yet. They don't know what difficulty awaits them. They don't know what struggles they will face. They don't know how they will disappoint one another. But they lovingly committed themselves to one another. This is what Naomi and Ruth did for one another. And what it begs the question for me that we really don't have in Scripture is simply this. What kind of woman must Naomi have been for Ruth to commit herself to her mother-in-law that was a whole different ethnic origin? And now she's willing to go to the death with her or for her. What Ruth does not know is that she is being grafted into the lineage of the greatest king of Israel and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Ruth does not know that that is what she is committing to, but that is going to be the blessing that Ruth receives because of this kind of love and commitment. And what we must do, men and women, in our relationships is to understand what love and commitment really is. And that we go to the mat and that we not only learn the dedication of Hannah and the understanding, uh, the, the commitment to prayer, but we understand this love and commitment that we see in the life of Naomi and Ruth. I'm reminded of the fruit of our obedience. As I mentioned, Ruth doesn't know what will be the fruit of this obedient step that she makes. But I'm reminded of this passage that Bart has challenged us to learn. Would you say it with me once again? Because the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 work perfectly to understand this this idea of the fruit that is born from love and commitment. Let's say the, the verse together. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. The question for us today, What kind of fruit is the love and commitment that we show in our relationships? What kind of fruit is that bearing today? Maybe it's that fruit is sitting around you today in children. Maybe it is spiritual fruit 
By the way, as I said earlier, motherhood doesn't just go to biology. There is spiritual mothering. There is spiritual fathering. And we would not be the church, the body of Christ, if there was not spiritual mothering and fathering that's going on that is not just about biology. What fruit is being born in your life? Who are the people in your downline that you see that are following after God today because of your love and commitment in their life? Will it be generations of love and commitment like we see in the lives of Ruth and Naomi? Which brings us to our third tandem of ladies today. This third group of ladies comes from the New Testament. It comes from a story that, and from an individual's life that I absolutely love. He was one of my, uh, the, my favorite biblical characters for most of my ministry. His name is Timothy. Because Timothy was a young pastor. And I spent more time in the books of First and Second Timothy thinking these words are specifically for me. And unfortunately for me, I am no longer that young pastor anymore. I still feel young. I still feel that I can be as good once as I ever was. Only once though, okay? I don't recover from lock-ins or from work days as, nearly as quickly anymore. And please don't ask me to move because it takes me, help you move because it takes me two weeks to recover from moves. But nevertheless, Timothy was that individual that I looked up to because he was an individual who had committed himself first to Christ and second to an individual named Paul. I have found that most of my ministry, I have been very blessed to serve alongside other men. Some have asked me many times over the years of my ministry, why don't you go and start your own church? Why don't you go and do this? Because I'm doing what God called me to do. And that is to come alongside other individuals and to be a team with them. And I'm so thankful for my brother Bart that we have this opportunity and what God has seen and what God is continuing to do. But I related to Timothy maybe more than any other biblical character. But Timothy was not Timothy on his own. Timothy was Timothy because of two godly women that were in his life. We find the story in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, and it says, I remember, this is Paul right, relating to his young Timothy, his young son in the faith. I remember your genuine faith, for you share, you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that that same faith is strong in you. If you're a Star Wars fan, you're, you're really, you're, your ears just got attentive. It's the, the faith is strong in you. It didn't come from, uh, from Star Wars, it came from this passage. I'm not saying that, Pat, that statement did, but nevertheless, your faith is, runs strong in your family, Timothy, because it's not just yours. It is your godly grandmother and your godly mother. I relate to this story because my godly mother was this individual in my life who shared her faith alongside me by living it out in front of me, and she was led to the Lord by her great-grandmother. So I had generations of faith in my family. A godly great-grandmother who I lived a lot of life with. A godly grandmother whom I loved, who was a workaholic, and I get much of my work ethic straight from her. And my godly mother. There's a lineage of faith. The question is for us, where is the lineage of faith going to go beyond us? 
How's it going to happen? And it says this, this is why I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. What Paul is saying to Timothy is, what do you have to lose, dude? You don't have anything to lose because you have faith that runs strong in your family. So be confident in the lineage of faith that holds you up high, Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. I believe that Timothy was an individual who if you would have said boo to, would have run. Because he was timid. He was shy. He was scared. He wouldn't have liked to have talked to anybody, but yet he became one of the pillars of faith in the New Testament. I love this picture. Even more so than the other pictures. They're they're much more professional. This looks like it belongs in a children's classroom. Because it was here that I began to learn my lineage of faith. I'll never forget the classes. I'll never forget the people who invested into my life. I'll never forget those flannel graph pictures that were like this one where other things would be added. Well, we still have flannel graphs. We just call them videos, okay? And we base our ministry on telling these stories of faith, upgirding families as they become the primary disciples of their families because... We have a lineage and legacy of faith to pass on to the next generation. My favorite metaphor I've used before, but is we are running this race of faith. And as we're running our particular leg, we've received the baton that has gone all the way back to Jesus himself, all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. They ran their race. Jesus passed it off to the apostles. It would not have come to us if over the centuries, men and women of faith would have lived this out to pass the baton to the next generation to say, run your leg of the race. And now it's down to us. And we have picked up the baton from them and we are running our leg of the race and we are tired at the very end. We are tired because there's all things that are assailing us. There's people who say negative things about us. There are struggles in our life. There are financial difficulties. And our race is getting difficult. But will we make the pass of the baton to the next generation like we see with Lois and Eunice as they made the pass of the baton of their legacy of faith to Timothy? Who are we passing this faith on to? Again, are they gathered around us? Are they here with us today? This past week, we've had some great, uh, great opportunities over the last several weeks. As Pastor Jamie uh, is coming to be our new student pastor, he comes June the 3rd. Jamie and Jennifer Pippen will be here June the 3rd to start with that. Very excited about our students uh, and, and the direction where this ministry is going to go. Very excited for Kyle to transition into this new role that he is in. But we're excited about that. But it left us several weeks at which we did not have speakers for our Wednesday night ministry. And over the last several weeks, we've had a series of, Bart shared the very first week, and then we had a series of church planters that we are investing in. So our church planters that we are investing in are investing in our kids. And then this past week and this upcoming Wednesday, I was so excited about because we had two of our former students who were coming back to speak into our students life lessons that they learned right here 
This upcoming week is Brandon Redwine. Excited to hear Brandon. So if you have a student, 7th through 12th grade, this is a great, have them be here this week to hear Brandon. But last week was my daughter. As she graduated from Dallas Baptist University and she is ministering at her church over in Irving, but she came back and she spoke. She's been investing her life over the last several years in a group of, that are now sophomore girls. She's had them for our Disciple Now weekend every week or every year she's had those same group of girls. But she spoke from her life. And what I got to visibly see was the next generation taking the baton. Something that quite honestly, like you saw the video earlier, I'd spike the football. But I really know it was my wife, Jennifer's legacy of faith and love and commitment and ours together to be able to invest. Where's that legacy of faith? Where's that downline coming from you? Who's that next generation that's going to continue running this race? to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, these lives of prayer and dedication, these lives of love and commitment in our relationships, this legacy of faith that comes from Lois and Eunice. Lord, we we find our hope in our relationship with you. Or if there's somebody here today that doesn't have that commitment to you, may they know this is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to be on journey, to not have arrived yet. But maybe today, Holy Spirit of God, if you have drawn them to this point and they say, I want a faith like that, may they be drawn to you and you alone, Jesus, that they might, where they're sitting today, Say, Jesus, I know I can't do this on my own. And I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Lord, if that's someone here today, may your spirit draw them in close. Father, for the rest of us that need to live lives with hearts abandoned to you, ready to pass on faith, commitment, love, dedication in the body of Christ, we're ready to continue that on may we live Lord giving our hearts to you because you'll do so much more with them than we can do ourselves it's in Jesus name we pray amen would you stand with us let's sing and make this a declaration that we live our lives with hearts abandoned today let's do that